Hello everyone, this is Eva Norlik-Smith with Yoga U Online, and I'm pleased to introduce this talk with Tom Myers, author of Anatomy Trains. Many of you will know Tom from his visionary work with what we might call the anatomy of connection, that is the fascial meridians that run through and interconnect the body into one functional whole. As a body worker, Tom had the privilege to study directly with Dr. Ida Rolf and Moshe Feldenkrais, who are widely recognized as two of the leading somatic visionaries of our time. And Tom has continued their work, adding his own insights and developing his own approach to holistic, integrative anatomy, particularly with the development of the concept of anatomy trains, which he described in his best-selling book of the same name. Tom is also known for his deep insights into the role of fascia as it relates to the structural health of the body and even to our emotional health and well-being. In this talk, we explore together the role of the fascia in mind-body transformation and the idea that if you change the body, that is the shape of the body, you might well change the whole person physically, mentally, and emotionally. Welcome, Tom. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thanks very much. Most people know you from your pioneering work with charting the myofascial meridians of the body in your book, Anatomy Trains. But you are also known for your deep insights into the fascia, the connective tissue of the body. You are one of a number of pioneering anatomists who describe fascia as a whole body regulatory system, and you have drawn some very interesting connections in your work around the link between the structure of the body embedded in our fascia and our mental and emotional makeup. Tell us about your background and how you first got interested in this area. Well, I first got interested in this area actually through meditation. Um, in learning to do that, I also was learning some of the martial arts, the more meditative martial arts like Tai Chi, and this got me towards body work. And one day somebody told me that Ida Rolf was giving a demonstration. This was in Santa Monica in L.A. And I took a friend of mine down there to hear her speak and to watch her do a session. And she was an impressive speaker, but she chose my friend as the model to work on. He was one of these people who looks normal when you look at him from the front, but when you look at him from the side, you can hardly see him because his chest is really collapsed, so his breastbone was nearly on his back. And in 45 minutes, she took a hold of his ribcage and changed its shape so that he was deeper from front to back, visibly, even to my untrained eye, deeper from front to back. He was a roommate in the house that I was living in, so I knew him fairly well, and his voice changed, and I have to tell you, after that, even his emotional affect changed. He became, if you will, a deeper person. I don't know quite what I mean by that, but I was just so impressed at the level of change that this woman could generate in a short time that I thought, hmm, I really want to do this. She was herself coming from, starting from yoga. She started studying yoga in the 20s in New York with a kind of rogue tantric guy named Pierre Bernard and studied yoga for many years and never thought that yoga would, you have to understand in the 20s that yoga was totally unheard of in the States, so... She never thought that there would be the kind of resurgence of yoga in the West the way there has been. So she was thinking, how do I create a yogic experience in a Western way? And she came up with Rolfing, or Structural Integration, her work, 
when she first started working with people, she started putting them in the yoga positions and seeing where they weren't stretching properly. She would grab the tissue and start stretching it. And then it evolved as she got in contact with osteopathy. It evolved into table work. But it was still trying to get that experience of yoga, still trying to get that fundamental thing of hatha yoga, which is if you change a body, you can change the person. And that's not an idea that we've really gone with in the West. We've mostly thought, oh, well, if you change your mind, you could change your body. We think of that now in terms of stress. You have to reduce the stress in your mind, and then you can reduce the stress in your body, whereas we, we all know now, certainly in the last 20 or 25 years, that if you reduce the stress in your body, you will reduce the stress in your mind. And the idea of the kind of body work that I've been doing these 30 years was to do just that reduce the amount of structural or gravitational or oppositional stress that was going on in the body so that the person could be more themselves. And I've been trying to, my own work, uh, lots of people have been doing that kind of work, either through teaching yoga or through doing body work. But what I've been trying to do is to create the anatomy that supports that kind of work, because the anatomy that we've been doing in the West has all been single muscle idea, well, the biceps is a flexor of the elbow, and that's what it does. But that's considering the biceps as if it were working alone on the body, and it never does work alone on the body. The fact of the matter is that everything is connected, but that is the scientific truth. But that's not a very useful scientific truth, because if you say everything's connected, then it doesn't tell you what to do next. So I was trying to map out the muscular connections and the fascial connections and give some different kinds of models that would speak more to this kind of holistic therapy that's happening now. You became a Rolf and you worked for a number of years as a Rolfer, and then down the road you developed the anatomy trained concept. So what inspired that? Was that working with people and see how, you know, as you said, everything hangs together and nothing really functions independently? How did you come well, up with I began, that? I began observing these kinds of things in my practice, that you could work on the foot and it would change the neck, or you could work on the hip and it would change the opposite shoulder. And, of course, we're all in this, oh, well, it's all connected kind of new age bubble. But that really isn't good enough. And these things may be happening through reflexes. But the main thing that brought about the anatomy trains was I became an anatomy teacher for the Rolf Institute and was trying to teach my students connected anatomy because all you could get in anatomy in those days was the kind of single muscle anatomy that I was describing before. So I said, well, do you see how the serratus anterior connects into this part of the external oblique and that connects into the internal oblique on the opposite side? So it started out as a game. It was a game for the students. And the better the game got, the more serious I got about it. And then actually somebody, one of my students came to me and said, oh, this is great. I'm going to teach it in this other school over here in Hawaii. Then I went, uh-oh, I'd better write this down if I expect to do anything with it. So I wrote an article for, for a journal, and that article was accepted, and that article was so popular that the publisher of the journal came back and said, we want you to write a book on this. And the rest is history. Once I'd written the book, it just went all over the world very, very quickly. I'm happy to say certainly has had a lot of resonance and it intuitively seems so obvious. And yet at the same time, the way modern medicine is practiced, even sports medicine and the kind types of medicine that deal with orthopedic injuries, it's, you know, one injury, one muscle. Everybody's looking for the single structure that failed. This tendon, this ligament, this muscle, what failed? If you look at it a little differently, if you say there is a network around every cell in the body that holds it together, then you would say there isn't really 
600 muscles, there is one muscle. There is one muscle that exists in 600 fascial pockets. So you have one mind, and it runs the one muscle. And really, your mind thinks that way. Your mind does not think in terms of biceps and deltoids. Your, your mental mind does, because that's what you've been taught. But your brain, when it's going to go move your body, doesn't say, now I'm going to contract the deltoid. It says, now I'm going to contract this motor unit. And this motor unit may have 10 muscle fibers or 100 muscle fibers associated with it. It's about on that order. In your eye where, or your tongue, where everything is very, very finely controlled in your lip, that would be one nerve ending for every 10 muscle fibers. In your gluteus maximus or your back muscles or your hamstrings, it's probably one little motor unit has 100 muscle fibers in it being served by one nerve. So it depends on how fine the motor control is as to how many muscle fibers are being run by a nerve. But that's the currency in which your mind creates movement, not individual muscles. There is no representation of a deltoid in your brain. There is no representation of a biceps in your brain. Your body doesn't think that way. We think that way because that's the way we dissected the body. It's a useful illusion, I suppose, but in the end, it's really an illusion. That's a beautiful point and brings us to the question about fascia. You were making reference to it, but just for the benefit of our listeners, why don't we talk a little bit about fascia? What is fascia and why is it so important? Fascia is that network. I have to say that fascia is a perfectly good medical word for very limited parts of these fascia, like the plantar fascia or the thoracolumbar fascia or your palmar fascia in the middle of your palm. And we're using that word. Yoga teachers, massage therapists, and even increasingly researchers are using this word to designate the entire extracellular matrix, which means everything outside your cells. You're made up of somewhere between 70 and 100 trillion cells. It depends on how you count but we have lots and lots of cells in there. So 70 trillion cells together, acting together, make up you. But most of these cells are little packets of water. Let's call them little water balloons, although that's not quite fair. So if you thought oh, we had 70 trillion little water balloons and we're trying to hold them together, then something has to knit them. You could think of an orange. An orange is full of juice. We juice oranges for our morning breakfast. But if you actually look at an orange, you'll see that each droplet of water is held in a cell within the section, and then each of those little cells are held in the section itself, and then the section is held by the outer orange, rhymed to hold the orange together. And if you want to get the juice out of it, you roll it on the counter to break up all that fiber that's holding the juice in its individual cells, and then you put it on the juicer. You could say that yoga or rolfing or bodywork was a way of rolling the orange on the counter, although I hope it's a little more selective than that kind of generalized breaking up. What happens is, is that the fascia, which is a colloidal protein called collagen with some other proteins, elastin and reticulin in there, and those are embedded in a kind of gluey, sugary substance, which is mucusy. So we're glued together with mucus. So if you think that you had a kind of fibrous, it's almost paper mache in a way. You have the fiber of the collagen, which is like the paper, and then this watery, gluey stuff, which is like the glue that you would put in paper mache. And depending on how much paper you have in that, I better drop that metaphor. Depending on how much of the collagen fiber you have in it and how much of the glue you have in it, you can have lots and lots of different characteristics. So, for instance, you're looking right now through the lens of your eye. That lens is made out of connective tissue. If you tap your teeth, the very hard enamel on your teeth is made from connective tissue. Your tendons, your ligaments, things that hold your organs in place, the fabric around your brain, they're all made out of varying proportions of the fiber and the glue. And 
in trauma, they get stuck, and in misuse or non-use, they get stuck. It will stick together, and then once it's been stuck together for days, weeks, or months, or years, you can no longer move it. And so that sweet discomfort that you feel in yoga is stretching one bit of fascia past another and slowly melting, in a chemical sense, breaking up. But we're New Age. We prefer words like melting, but you are taking those adhesions that have formed between one structure and another and opening them up. And you can do that with body work in a very specific way, and you can do that with yoga in a very general way. There are advantages to, to both sides of that equation. That's a beautiful point, and that relates to your concept again of anatomy trains, where you're talking about the superficial back line and the front line, and the, what you're saying, they're really patterns of connective tissues is that the correct understanding? And you really yeah, they're patterns of connective tissues and muscle. Muscle is different from connective tissue. That's the contractile element within the connective tissue. We commonly speak about the musculoskeletal system, and there isn't any muscle attaching to any bone anywhere at any time at anybody. Muscle is like hamburger. It can't attach to a bone. It needs to be organized by the net of the fascia. So there's fascia going around the muscle. There's fascia going through the muscle. And when the muscle runs out, that fascia from the outside in the middle of the muscle spins into a tendon, almost like yarn, and then that tendon blends, not even with the bone at the other end, but with the saran wrap coating around the bone. So the muscle is actually pulling on the fascia, which is pulling on the saran wrap, which is around the bone. That's a little more accurate than saying the muscle is pulling on the bone. And almost all the injuries, so we, we have a few muscle injuries, certainly we have neurological injuries that can happen to people, but most of the injuries are injuries that happen to the fascia. It's a tendon tear, it's a tendon strain, it's a strain at the antithesis of the tendon where the tendon meets the bone, a bone break, a broken bone is a fascia that re-knits the bone uh, when there's a bone break. Cartilage injuries are fascial injuries, so the cartilage would be part of that fascial net. It's a broad use of the word fascia. I didn't quite finish that thought from before. This is a very broad use of the word fascia. What we're really talking about is the body-wide extracellular net that holds us together. And the research that's been coming in on this has just been fantastically exciting because 20 years ago, so certainly 40 years ago when I started in this trade, everybody thought, oh, well, the fascia is just the packing material that goes in around the other tissues. And now we're finding out that it's a very exciting regulatory system in the same way that your circulatory system is a regulatory system with the hormones and the neuropeptides and chemical balances going up and down, and negative feedback loops controlling the chemistry inside your body. And your nervous system is a regulatory organ that always making balance between your inside and your outside world. The fascial system is also a regulatory system, but nobody's been studying it as a regulatory system. That's not true, actually. People have been studying it as a regulatory system, but only in its relationship to the immune system, only to its relationship to repelling foreign invaders. But it has another whole organizational thing that keeps us in the shape that we're in and is generally our, our shapeshifter, so to speak. And it's that role that's being explored now, which is really exciting. Such as the organ of form or more widely as a regulatory system than that? Yes, the organ of form, but if you take that thought out, it's a pretty wide thing. What's clear is that the bags for things, the fascial bags for organs, happens before the organ happens. So there's a bag for your liver, and then the cells that are going into that bag become liver cells. And what turns them on to be liver cells? Ultimately, the DNA does, but locally, 
the spatial relationships are going to determine what goes on. Another example of this is in your brain. The thing that makes you human, as opposed to our monkey cousins, is that we have a layer called the neocortex, which is exactly six layers thick. And it's six layers thick all the way around the surface of your brain. And those six layers get laid down, first the innermost layer, then the next layer, then the next, 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 and then the outermost layer. But those cells aren't born on the surface of the brain. Those cells are born in the ventricles in the middle of the brain, and they have to migrate out to the surface of the brain. Now, that's not very far in a, in a little tiny baby, a little embryo, but it's incredibly long as far as the cell is concerned. So how do the cells, which get born in the middle of the brain, know where to go on the surface of the brain? And the answer is, is that they put their little arms, like a hand reaching out, a pseudopod, around a connective tissue fiber, and they ride that connective tissue fiber out to the surface of the brain and are deposited in just the right spot. So it's the connective tissue cells that are actually organizing the brain. And you've probably heard this idea, you're only using 10% of your brain. And besides it being not true, everybody's using lots lots of their brain. But the reason that they said that is that the neurons are only 10% of the brain. The other 90% of the brain are these connective tissue cells. And they're recently being shown to have a role in consciousness so that it may be that emotions or belief systems are actually stored within this connective tissue system and that the nervous system is not the only contribution to consciousness. Now, I'm out on a limb right now and possibly in the process of sawing myself off. So that last thing about whether the connective tissue is involved in consciousness is not a very well-accepted idea at this point, but it is definitely a an interesting idea and I think a valid one. It relates to your story in the beginning about your friend and Ida Rolf worked on him and transformed, in essence, his special connective tissue. You said not only his posture and the way he appeared changed, but his voice changed and it sounded like who he was as a person was transformed. Yes, and I've seen that. I've seen that again and again in my practice that you make these changes and the person changes. Now, we have to remember that the nervous system, the circulatory system, and the fascial system are never separate in a human being. They develop together, and they live together, and they work together, so it's very hard to separate them. I'm, I'm separating them for analysis now in this conversation, but in the body, they have always worked together and always do work together. So sometimes it's hard to distinguish what is a neurological change and what is a chemical change and what is a spatial change. But if you'll allow me to use an example, if you think of someone who's depressed, you don't think of someone with their chest stuck up. You think of somebody with their chest collapsed. So if you approach depression from a neurological point of view, I'm sure you will find that there are things in their past that contribute to their feeling of depression. And if you approach it from a chemical point of view, you can say that serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac or Zoloft might be very helpful because it has a chemical effect being depressed. But it also has a spatial effect. It also has a look to it in the shape of the body. You really don't see people with their chests puffed out going around saying, I'm so depressed. If you look at the people that you know that are depressed, they are generally stuck at the exhale end of the breath. So we've gone after the talk therapy solutions to depression, and we've now more recently gone after the chemical reactions to depression. But I think we really ought to be looking at how people hold themselves and how they shape themselves and that is, that relates to what you said before, the organ of form. We, we have to change the connective tissue to change things at that level. And that, of course, changes their breathing, and their breathing changes their chemistry and changes their outlook. So it's, again, really hard to separate all these things. But I think people have been paying 
a lot of attention to the chemistry and a lot of attention to the neurology and not much attention to shape. And that's where yoga and body work really shine. That's a very beautiful point. And, of course, health professionals are trained to think one muscle at a time, one organ at a time, one toe imbalance at a time. But that's not really how the body functions, as you said yourself. Yeah, it really is. You already touched upon it, but what do you feel are the implications for health professionals and movement teachers of looking at the body as a functional complex rather than just an assembly of muscles and bones and organs and biochemicals? I think if you look at it, that we've really had, and this is being very generalized, we've had 300 years or so of chemical medicine, of what's called allopathic medicine or traditional medicine, but I think that's kind of funny. Other forms of medicine have been going for a couple thousand years, and allopathic medicine has been really going. Go back to Hippocrates if you want to, but modern biochemical medicine really dates from William Harvey and Pasteur and Lister in the 1800s and the development of anesthesia. And then we've had, in the last hundred years, we've had psychiatry, really what neighbors used to do for each other and maybe was in the realm of the shaman became an organized science because of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and a lot of other people. So we've had the organized look at psychiatry and uh, and the talk therapy cure and various forms of psychotherapeutic intervention for about a hundred years. And we're really just looking at the very beginning of body work. I know that yoga has been going for a long time, but it's really getting examined in the light of modern Western thought and modern Western therapy. And then you have things like osteopathy, rolfing, massage, sports medicine, and all the rest of these now contributing to this realm. So I think that this next century is going to be the century of body because... This is the century in which we need to learn to change behavior. We need to learn to do two major things in this century. One is to get people to change behavior because so many of the big diseases have been solved and what's really on the cards now are behavioral problems. Heart disease, diabetes, these are things where people need to change their habits more than they need to take a medicine. There's plenty of medicines for them on the market, but that's not really solving the problem. That's just pushing back the symptoms. Medicine is great at changing chemistry, but it is lousy at changing behavior. And movement therapists are lousy at changing chemistry. We don't, we don't administer things through the mouth or, or through needles, but we're wonderful at changing behavior. We have to get better at it, but this is our realm as to how to change behavior or to change movement, which is behavior. And I think we're going to get really good at this. We're just starting to really examine it now. Yoga was very small until quite recently. Pilates was very small until quite recently. And body work was quite limited until very recently. And now these things are going to come together and form what I think will be a very powerful combination of manual therapy and movement, uh, where everybody is speaking one language, which is why I want yoga teachers to learn the language of anatomy, is that gets yoga the seat at the table that it deserves. And if yoga people are just talking about energy and everything's connected, then they really won't get a seat at the table because Anatomy is the language that everybody speaks. And I'm talking about bringing orthopedists and physiotherapists and athletic trainers and yoga people and body workers all to the same table and developing something that is very strong and very powerful. This brings me to the second thing that we have to do this century, which is we have to educate our kids for the electronic world. This is not a genie that's going to get put back in the bottle. Everybody is connected to their phone and their iPad and their computer, and that's not going to get less. It's going to get more. And 
except for the Wii machine or the balance board or something like that, mostly the computers, you have a very sedentary interaction with those kinds of machines, which means that we need to counterbalance that with body awareness and living in the body. And we don't know how that works yet in an electronic world. All of the physical education that we have is designed for an industrial world, getting ready for people to work on the assembly lines. But we're not getting people ready to work on the assembly lines anymore because that's not what's happening. We need to get people ready to work with computers, which means they need to have their reflexes trained right up and also that they need to have their bodies ready and able for them. And this is a very, very interesting challenge that we have in front of us, and I think yoga has a lot to say about that. So I'm really hoping that yoga will improve its training standards and improve its ability to talk its walk so that the value that yoga has will make it into this new science. I just love your concept of integrating the movement therapies and manual therapies because they really are the only fields that work directly on this hugely important extracellular matrix, connective tissue. This last point that brings us to this new concept of fascial fitness that you have started to introduce. Could you talk about what is fascial fitness and how is it different from other approaches to fitness and why is it important? Fascial fitness as a concept is when you are training, and yoga is a form of training in this context that I'm using, and even body work is a form of training. When you are training the body, when you're trying to get the body to change, fascia is one of the things that you're trying to get to change. Now, that's not new. The fascia has been with us forever. Our focus on fascia may be new, but the fascia has been with us for years and years, you know, ever since we had a body. Yoga folks are stretching fascia. Yoga folks are working with fascia. It's just a question of identifying it and understanding what happens. Now, in training in particular, the reason that we have so many injuries in the fascia is people build up the muscles faster than they do the fascia. The fascia is a kind of, you could compare it, say, call the muscles an Alsatian, a German shepherd, and the fascia of St. Bernard. It's a slow dog, but it's a loyal dog. And once it comes along, it comes along well, but it comes along more slowly. So you go into the gym, you can train your muscles up in five or six weeks, and you're going to have much stronger muscles, but the fascia is lagging behind. So very, very often we have these injuries that happen a couple months, three months, six months into training because people have overbuilt the muscles and undertrained the fascia. So what Robert and I are looking at was, well, How do you train this fascia? What happens when the fascia is trained? There are several things that have come out of this that are really fascinating. For instance, the fascia likes it much better if you don't train individual muscle groups. The fascia likes it better if you train long chain things like my anatomy trains, long kinetic chains like the anatomy train. So the idea of yoga is training long kinetic chains, not individual muscles. That's already a head start that yoga's gotten. There's a lot of wisdom in the yoga, and a lot of it is applicable to today, although we have to look at everything, don't we, because we're not training people 2,000 years ago for an agrarian lifestyle. We're not even training people 400 years ago for the beginnings of an industrial lifestyle. We are training people for an electronic lifestyle, and that probably means that we're going to have to rethink yoga in terms of how it applies to bodies today. The long chains idea is one thing that came out. So all of what we were doing in the 70s to train our muscles, like getting on those muscleless machines and 
lifting something with our ankles or doing free weights and preacher curls. These are great for building the individual muscles and terrible for training your fascia because they train the fascia in one particular direction, one particular vector. But right beside that is fascia which is not prepared for life, and life doesn't always come at you right straight down the same vectors that the machines do. In terms of training, we're much more in favor of these kinds of rope systems or TRX or things that you do on top of the ball where you have to build some stability into your body. These are all really good, and these are contained in yoga, and you know, you're building balance in tree pose and forearm balance and that kind of thing. I would say that I'm a little more skeptical about yoga classes that do the same thing all the time, the same 28 poses or the same this or the same that from week to week. That is the same thing as getting on the machines. You're training one piece of fascia, and you're not training your whole fascial body. I would encourage people, if you're doing a standard yoga routine, is one, either vary the routine, or two, get up and dance halfway through the class and yawn and stretch and roll around on the floor and do something different because the message from the fascial research is very clear. Don't just keep doing the same thing again and again and again. It doesn't train fascia well. And there are a number of other things. We have seen that the fascia organizes itself so that if somebody is sedentary, the fascia becomes like felt with the fibers going in all directions. But then once you start doing some stretching like yoga or exercise or jumping rope, that the fascia actually, over a period of a couple of months, will change its orientation and get into a much better, I don't want to go into all the details of the formation, but it will get into a much more organized, ordered, and functional formation rather than a random felt-like formation just as a result of doing exercise or stretching such as yoga would provide. This is just two of a number of things that has come out of the fascial fitness thing. I can't recount the whole thing right now, but I certainly welcome people coming into our class or checking it out on the website. There's no doubt that fascial research is one of the most exciting frontiers of medical research right now. And as you said, there is so much new information that has come out there. There's very little awareness of it, and it really has groundbreaking implications for the way we approach not just health and fitness, but also many approaches to medical treatment. So... It is a beautiful area of knowledge, and we're so pleased that you will be joining us to talk about special fitness, and we're looking forward to a really exciting webinar with you. I'm looking forward to doing it. Thank you so much for taking your time. I really appreciate it.